really good to see all of you here this morning. Um, just a quick update on where we're going to be from a preaching perspective as we get into the new year here. Uh, so beginning in two weeks, we're going to be starting back into the sermon series we left off in the fall, walking through the New Testament book of Acts. And so we are going to continue to walk through that book to the end. Um, I think we've done three chapters thus far, so we've, we still have a long ways to go in that book yet. Um, but today and next week, uh, we're going to be doing a couple of sermons from an ongoing intermittent series uh, titled Law and Grace. And so uh, I want to provide a little bit of context because we did a series on this uh, back or last year. I think we did like six or eight uh, sermons on this concept. So uh, this morning, I just want to provide a little bit of background uh, for this week and next week, um, just to kind of remind us why we're doing this and, and what this is all about. So law and grace are two massive concepts within the biblical story. And so just let me talk briefly here about both law and grace. So when I'm speaking of law, I have in mind basically every Old Testament law that you could think of, okay? There's 613 of them, and I, I don't expect you to like know all of those, but just thinking generally, and, and culturally we hear some of these things, like people will say, well, don't eat shellfish, right? Don't eat pork, uh, don't wear purple linen. Those are some of the like the culturally ones that get thrown out at times. Um, so, so I would have all of those in mind, uh, but I was also, like, if you want to summarize them, there's maybe two ways we could summarize them that maybe would speak to us more meaningfully. So Ten Commandments, right? So that's one way that we can kind of summarize Old Testament laws. Just think about the Old, or the Ten Commandments. Also, another way that we can think about this, and this is, this is what we did in the sermon series last year, was when Moses, so Moses servant of God, right? God speaks through Moses, led Israel for a time. Uh, when Moses was talking to Israel on behalf of God, he stated that if Israel obeyed God, they would be blessed, and if they disobeyed God, they would be cursed. So this is another way that we can think about law. Obey the law, and you're blessed. Disobey the law, and you'll be cursed. While well, Israel proved that they were really bad at obeying God's law. So they had a curse on them throughout their history. And this is really bad news. To be cursed by God is really bad news. So then initially what we could say is that law was proposed as a construct of salvation. Okay? Obey God's law and you're saved. You're blessed. But what's vital for us to understand is that the law provides a false or an impossible offer of salvation. We, we cannot find salvation through obeying the law. Now, we all can tend to think about the Christian life in a way that is transactional. To think that God's approval of us waxes and wanes according to our behavior, right? Like, I'm obeying God good. He's happy with me. Everything's fine. But then there's plenty of days when we're chasing sin, when we're failing, spiritually speaking. So, do you ever find yourself doing this? Do you ever envision God as perpetually disappointed with you? 
or like he's always like a micromanager looking down on you, just waiting for you to fail, to do something wrong, and, and then he's going to call you on it. Law is not good news at all. Grace, on the other hand, is not at all like law. Grace moves us to find our approval, not in what we do, but in what Jesus has done for us. So grace is, by definition, an undeserved gift. That's what grace is. So Jesus is grace. Forgiveness of sins is grace. Salvation from hell, this is all grace. All of these things are undeserved gifts that God gives to us through his son, Jesus. So throughout the biblical storyline, we've got this strong contrast, law and grace. Martin Luther speaks about this in this way. He says, our hearts are hardwired for works righteousness. So when you hear works righteousness, think law. That's essentially what works righteousness is. That is the idea that what we do determines how God feels about us. Unless we are actively preaching the gospel to ourselves daily, we fall back into works righteousness. This, this is how we function, okay? And so we need to continue to preach gospel. So when we talk about gospel here, we're thinking Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And in all of that is pervasive grace, okay? So we need to continually come back to the gospel. And so this ongoing sermon series has as a goal to help us read our Bibles in the way that it is intended to be read, to see Jesus at the center, not ourselves, but to see Jesus at the center, to see his works as crucial, to see ourselves as the ones who receive from him, to see ourselves as the ones who need help, the ones that Jesus comes to save. To understand that we don't get near to God by being good, but by trusting in the one who was truly good for us. So the law is not good news. And we should not, we should not think that the Christian life is about obeying God's law. That is not what the Christian life is. The Christian life is based on grace. And grace is good news. So what we did in this sermon series then is we went to various parts of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and we just tried to draw out in various ways what's law and what's grace and let it preach to us. And so today we're going to go to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to read about two brothers whose names are Cain and Abel. So I'm going to read from Genesis 4, and then we're going to work through this a little bit. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? 
And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this story. I pray that you would help us to see the beauty of grace in this as well as the horror of law. And would you use law to drive us to the better thing, to drive us to Jesus, to build our faith in him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so in these verses, Abel is identified as a shepherd. Okay, that's what he's doing. He's working with the flock. Cain is a farmer. He's farming the land. And what we read is that they both bring an offering to God. Okay, so later on in Scripture, we're going to find that an offering was made as a way to try and absolve someone who had sinned against God, almost as a way to appease God, knowing that he had been sinned against. And in later books, we read of God's commands for people to make sin offerings to him, right? So you take an animal and you're going to make a sin offering to God. So what we read about these offerings is Cain brought an offering described as the fruit of the ground, And Abel brought an offering, brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portion. So so they're both bringing offerings from that which they're good at, right? This is what their specialty is. This is what they work in each and every day. And so they're bringing an offering from that which is valuable and meaningful to them and that they are good at. But right after this, then, we read this. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Okay, so I think this is where things really begin to get interesting for us, because I think most of us can read this, and we can have questions that come up for us. Why? Why would God do that? Why does God show regard for one and not the other? And and I think that's really the big question, probably the question many of us have in our own hearts. Now, 
Many commentators on these verses want to make a big deal about the type of offering that each boy made. And so one example would be, Abel's offering was approved because it involved the shedding of blood. And that then is why it was approved. So this is what Cain lacked. If he would have shed some blood, then God would have been happy with him as well. But it's hard to have bloodshed when you're taking something from the ground, right? Like that, that's just not how things work. But, but that's not the issue at all. Now I would say that the allusions to the firstborn from the flock and the shedding of blood, that, that those things do point forward to Jesus. And they are going to help us understand what a, an ultimate sacrifice is going to look like and why Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was so necessary for us. But the type of offering in this story is not the issue here. And this really then moves us to a reality that we talk frequently about here at Center Church. And that is that the Bible is one big story. Okay? So we find answers to what's going on here in Genesis 4 by reading other parts of the Bible. Okay? So specifically for us this morning, we can find help in Hebrews 11, verse 4. And this says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. So what's the key ingredient that we're learning about here in Hebrews 11? It's faith. That's what's being emphasized by faith. That's what made Abel's offering approved in God's eyes. And we could go to tons of places throughout the Bible to support this reality. This is driven home over and over. The key ingredient in the Christian life is faith. The work we do as Christians is placing belief in Jesus. That's the work of the Christian life, the primary work. So Abel was putting focus on the one to whom he was sacrificing. His focus was on God. Cain, well, he was focused on his offering. Now, it's not that Cain didn't have faith. He did have faith. Everyone has faith in something. It's just that Cain was placing his faith not in God, in himself, in his ability, in his sacrifice. Cain was basically playing a game of comparison. Like kids. Kids are always comparing the portion of food that they get, right? Or how long their turn was on the video game or or whatever. Kids do this all the time. So do adults. We're, We're not exempt from this. We compare that person who got the promotion, right? And, and tons of other things in life we're continually comparing. And this is really dangerous when we compare ourselves in this way. So let's see where this leads in this story. It's really obvious. It says, Cain became very angry. Okay, so, so maybe Cain's argument is going to be, well, he came first. If we read the story, it says that Cain 
uh, we read that he came first with his offering. So, so maybe he's thinking, like, I set the example. That should count for something, right? Being the first one. Or at minimum, the offerings must be similar, right? If there's regard for Abel's offering, why shouldn't there be regard for Cain's offering as well? But, but there's not. There's nothing. It's black and white. It's the haves versus the have-not. It's either or. It's not both and. And because of this, Cain becomes very angry. But God then verbally engages Cain. I think it's really important for us to hear the law in what God says. Okay? It's presented really clearly here. God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Okay, it's really easy for us to read that and conclude Cain needs to do better. Cain just needs to do better. He just needs to up his game, right? And I would say there's a ton of Bible commentators that would say this. Okay, I was reading in the ESV study Bible, and, and I would point a lot of people to that study Bible, okay? But I'm going to call a spade a spade, all right? So this is what the ESV study Bible said about this. The Lord's words challenge Cain to do better. Now, as much as I would appreciate the ESV, and I do appreciate the ESV study Bible, I would call that a bad take. That is not helpful at all. Think about Cain. There's a lot of white space in this story, right? Maybe Cain thought he performed well already. Maybe he was really concerned with being noticed, with being approved. Maybe he poured everything he had into this offering. Maybe he felt like there wasn't anything more he could give with this offering. We don't know, right? Maybe he was so self-righteous he just kind of threw it together. He could have done that as well, but we don't know that. But what we do know is that the issue wasn't doing better. Hebrews 11 pointed that out. It was an issue of faith. It was an issue of Cain's heart, what he was hoping in. It wasn't an external thing. It was an internal thing within Cain. And God continues. He says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Well, we could say it's not if Cain doesn't do well, it's when Cain doesn't do well, because this is what the New Testament teaches. It tells us no one is good, no one is righteous, okay? That's the reality for all of us. But when we fail, when we sin, when we fall short, when we disappoint, sin is there, whispering, enticing, deceiving. And God says... Its desire is contrary to you. Now, this is really important for us to understand and get this because this is not how sin typically feels for us. Sin oftentimes feels good, looks good, seems good, right? So so if we apply this to, to Cain, what looked good to him? Murder. Murder looked good to Cain. 
Now, many people can consider the idea of murder and quickly conclude that is not a good option, okay? I'm guessing plenty of us, probably all of us in here, maybe we haven't like seriously considered it in our minds, but we've been angry, severely angry, all of us, and we've not gone that, down that road, okay? But for Cain, when he had the idea planted in his head or in his heart, He didn't push it out. He then moved on to planning, okay? And then from planning, he moved to actual execution. He actually followed through with murdering his brother. Okay, this is a picture of what the law produces. Okay, we've got to see this. This is what the law produces, death. The law kills. This is what Romans 7 says teaches us. You can also go 2 Corinthians, I think it's 2 Corinthians 3, 6, also talks about the same idea. And there's other places we could go. This is what the law produces, is death. Cain's failure to adequately keep the law, or you can hear, Cain's failure to do well enough resulted in the death of his brother. But it's not just the death of his brother. We also hear the depth of despair in him also. He says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. He also goes on and he says, he feels the exile from God. He also says, he speaks of being fearful of being killed by others. His inability to do well enough to keep the law led to death. And I think Cain would tell us the law is not good news. This is what the Bible screams at us. The law is not good news at all. The reason Cain was so angry was because of his attempt to obey a law. And it doesn't matter if this was his law, like some New Year's resolution. It doesn't matter if it was his law or his parents' law or God's law. Law does not lead to life. It condemns. The law is really good at exposing us, at bringing us low. So the point of the law, and there is a good point of the law. The New Testament teaches that there is a good part of the law, okay? But it's not keeping it. The good part of the law is showing us we can't keep it, that we're condemned when we try to keep the law. So the good part of the law then is exposing us and pointing us to the solution. It moves us beyond ourselves. Now a problem we can see as Cain is how he doesn't move beyond himself. Initially he just becomes angry and he sits in his anger and then he tries to solve the problem on his own. And this led to the greater guilt as he killed his brother. God then comes to Cain again and he asks Cain, where is his brother? And Cain responds with arrogance and bitterness. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Just kind of throws it back into God's face. It's like, I just think about like sassy responses when my kids, when they give that to me, right? Like kids, every kid does this. It's not just my kids. I realize every kid does this, okay? Those of you who have young kids, this is coming, right? Like (laughs) it's, it's going to get real as kids get older, Right? And so it's just part of 
the reality. So this is what Cain is doing. And then God responds. This is what he says. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. The thing where Cain found his identity, the ground, the thing that produced his offering, the thing that he was good at, the thing that he likely viewed as connected to his blessing, even that is now cursed. The ground also experienced a form of death. So we can see here how the law produces death on a variety of levels, right? It's not just Abel dying. It's Cain. Throughout his life, in a number of different ways, he experiences death. Now, we could read this story about Cain and Abel and and just easily focus on many peripheral issues in this story. So we could say, Cain, don't get so mad, okay? Just don't get mad. Or we could say, Cain, just respect the ground. Cain, improve your offering. Just do better. Cain, treat your brother better. Don't murder him. Okay, there's all kinds of moral lessons that we could pull from this, and I would say wrongly pull from this story. But, but none of that would be the point. Cain tried to make an acceptable offering. He thought the point was the offering. And then he got mad at his brother because he thought that was his enemy. His brother did it better. Okay, so when he's mad at him, then he goes and he kills him. It wasn't the offering. It wasn't his brother. The issue was Cain's heart. He thought he needed to clean up the external circumstances of his life. He thought he needed to be better. But all of the ugliness was inside of him. He was operating under law. And so his faith was misplaced. When we function under law, we put our faith in ourselves. And that never ends well. And this all leads to Cain being surrounded by death and being filled with despair. It's a nightmare for him. And this is where law leads. And this is why we end our sermons with gospel application. We are not going to give you law. We are not sending you out of here saying, here are three things you can do so God will be happy with you. Here are three things you can do so that you will be a good Christian. It's not the Christian life. The point of the Christian life is not about us. It's not about what we do. It's about Jesus. It's about what he does, has done for us, continues to do for us. So we want to put our hope and our faith in him. We want to be reminded about who Jesus is, not who we need to to develop ourselves into, but to focus on who Jesus is. So three points of gospel application for us this morning from this story. First of all, God does not leave us. So I don't know if you caught this at the end of 
the story, but it says that Cain left the presence of the Lord. That's what we do. We leave God. God is never the one who leaves us. Don't ever think that God abandons you. He doesn't. God does not abandon you. We are the fickle ones who do that. And we, if we're someone who considers ourselves a Christian, we have to understand how the Bible portrays leaving. Because we tend to think of, like, the big sins, right? Murder. Well, I didn't do that. Sexual immorality. Okay? Those are the big things that we tend to think. That's what it means to leave God. But it can also look like an impressive religious person. Someone who's trying to obey all of God's rules. Someone who looks like the perfect Christian, but in that they're actually trying to earn salvation. They're not actually trusting Jesus. I mean, Cain, Cain brought a sacrifice, right? Anyone who would come to church or do something in life that we would consider a meaningful sacrifice, you'd be like, oh, that's good. Okay, so we, we've got to understand what it means, what it looks like for us to leave God. It can look very much like someone who's actually near to God, okay? But first and foremost, God does not leave us. All right, secondly, then, grace is offered to us. So here's the deal in this story. Cain expected to be murdered. When we get to the end of the the verses that we read this morning, that's what he was fearful of. And what we find then is he's thinking in a very karma-based way, right? He killed someone. So in his mind, he thinks he deserves to be killed. He expected for someone to come and to kill him. This is law. This is transactional ways of thinking. This is karma. That's what that is. If you obey, you're blessed. If you disobey, you're cursed. Cain expects to die. He's filled with despair. There's no hope. And this is what the law produces. But not, that's not the end of the story. Two of the greatest words in the Bible are, but God. Okay, notice how at the end of this story, God comes to Cain. And he offers Cain protection. He puts a mark on Cain. We don't know exactly what that looks like or what that means, but he marks Cain. I mean, the fact that God does that, the fact that there's any semblance of kindness in God at that moment for this man is mind-blowing. Why would he do that? He killed his brother. This man who had presented an acceptable sacrifice to God. Why would God show kindness to this man? Grace is offered to us as well. And what we read in this story is a whisper 
of Jesus getting on the cross, knowing full well our sin and saying, not so. This is what he says about Cain at the end of the story. Not so. This is Jesus getting on the cross. And he says this about us, about anyone who believes in him, who trusts in Jesus. He says, not so. You can't have her. You can't have him. Grace covers their life. And that's the best news in the world. Grace is so good. There's nothing like it. Lastly, if grace is offered to us, then the only reasonable response for us is to believe the gospel. Jesus doesn't save the impressive. He doesn't save the sufficient. He doesn't save those who are remarkable, like Abel, necessarily, right? An ugly heart can be masqueraded by looking put together. Look at Cain's life. Cain was the firstborn son. He had many advantages in that culture, just being the firstborn son. He made an offering. It's not about what we do. We must understand the Christian life is about our need. Not what we bring to the table, but our insufficiency. It's not about believing in ourselves or anything attractive in this world. The Christian life is about believing solely in Jesus.